the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. I'd like to introduce Squadron Leader Retired Peter Bradford. The Australian Air Force needs personnel who can adapt to whatever type of demanding operations that they're chosen for. Peter Bradford and his mate Peter Armstrong, who features in a related podcast, represents the best in pilots who were chosen to fly many different aircraft types and operated them in a manner that excelled. Now, in this particular podcast, have a listen in as Peter Bradford will describe his life flying Iroquois helicopters in Vietnam, where the sound of the Huey was not only extremely welcome, but on occasions for army personnel could be the difference between life and death. Then, listen again as Peter describes his stint on C-130 Hercules, followed by stints on fast jet instruction, the VIP back. 111, the DC-8s, and then to Qantas. I'd like to quote Peter's own words. This is what he had to say. As I age, I sometimes have to pinch myself to realise what a fortunate life I've had. For a boy from the bush and humble background, I was flying Prime Ministers, Governor Generals, Heads of State, and the late Duke of Edinburgh, who was endorsed on the back 111. I was also to offer him to fly the aircraft. I also admit to flying Prime Minister Mugabe for five days. I accepted an offer of a position with Qantas. Instructing on the Boeing 747-200-300 was a challenge. In 1990, I was given the opportunity to line fly on the Boeing 744. At the beginning of 1996, the opportunity to leave Qantas and crew a Douglas DC-8 for Kerry Packer was just too good to refuse. What an adventure. Saw lots of Las Vegas. Not long after the death of Kerry, I returned to Qantas. In my 77th year, a fortunate life indeed. Well, now let's listen to Peter actually in interview and let him tell his story. Well, today it's a great privilege to talk to squadron leader, retired, Peter Bradford. G'day, Peter. Gareth, how are you? Look, mate, I'm exceedingly well. Why did you join the Air Force? Oh, it's a, it's a long story, but uh, I had, a, uh, I suppose, a, a yen to fly. Believe it or not, my dear old dad uh, flew a gypsy moth, learnt to fly, and went sailing on a gypsy moth in the early 1930s. <laughs> So there must have been something uh, in in the blood that uh, that passed on to me. Fair enough. Uh, uh, Lee Kernigan has a great song called "Boy from the Bush." Uh, it almost I should be playing it under you, talking to you, because you're a boy from the bush. So how did a boy sure from am. the bush get to see planes that you wanted to fly, apart from the one your father was in? <laughs> um, yeah, born in Mirriburra, and parents were farmers. Born in the same hospital as uh, three other Air Force blokes that are my vintage pilots, Spider Rider, uh, Mick Lavercombe, Chuck Connors, all four of us were born in the uh, 
Mirabara Hospital, around about the same, over a period of must five years. Must be something years. about that hospital. <laughs> <laughs> must, must have been. <laughs> was the doctor that delivered you a former Air Force pilot? <laughs> Could have been. So what? it was 1966 that you were selected. How, yes, how did you? What was the selection process? Uh, I thought it was quite strenuous. Uh, the uh, One of the questions I got asked at the interview board was, did I have any relatives in the Air Force? And like a dill, I said no. Uh, but later on, I was to find that actually I was uh, uh, related to Brick Bradford and his brother Cole. Really? <laughs> Our grandfathers were brothers. And uh, they disappeared off the face of the earth. That side of the family lived yep. in around Allora. And my clan were down around Tannimarole Kalani. Yep. But uh, no, it was interesting. I uh, had failed to get into the Army in the Light Aviation <laughs> Regiment. And sometime later, I tried for the Air Force and made it first go, which was rather so surprising. So you chose the Army first off simply because they had an air group? Because I was in the CMF in those days. Yep. Uh, I was in the CMF to earn some more money to pay for the flying lessons out at Archerfield. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my CO at the Army unit suggested instead of paying for flying lessons, I should join the Army and fly in the Light Aviation Regiment. But the Army thought that I'd make a fine... Uh, officer in the army, but they didn't think I was going to make much of a pilot. <laughs> so, you certainly proved them wrong. Which is an interesting, is it? It's an interesting take. So being selected to actually getting there, when you got there, where did you go? Uh, what was the process and what kinds of things were you asked to do? Well, I met three other Queensland boys who were going to join the same pilot's course and we all lined up, the four of us at uh, South Brisbane Railway Station to get the train to Sydney. Uh, Mike Tardent uh, was was one of the uh, other guys who ended up graduating. We had two more who, who didn't make it out of Point Cook but stayed in the Air Force and became air traffic controllers, mm. Nigel Moody and Chris, Chris Spencer. And um, uh, having arrived at Point Cook, it didn't worry me that much, the discipline and all that sort of stuff, because I'd been in the cadets at school mm. and I'd been in the CMF. Uh, a short haircut didn't worry me. Uh, and so I think I settled in pretty well. But having been a mature age bloke, I was 22. The, re the majority of the course was straight out of school. And uh, so I'd forgotten all that physics and math stuff that from some years before. So yes. it was a bit of a struggle for the first few months. But uh, I hung in there and... Uh, Took a day at a time, and if you were if you were still on the course the next day, that was a bonus. That maturity, even though it's not a lot of years, seventeen to twenty-two, but that maturity must have been a benefit in the in initial stages, surely. It was, it, it was. I saw the importance of head down, tail up. Um, some of the younger guys, I think, uh, tried to probably party too much weekends. Yep. Got a bit behind here and there. Uh, I never saw Melbourne <laughs> from Point Cook. I, I never got into Melbourne until very late in the in the piece before we finished Point Cook. Yeah. What kinds of things did you train on? The windshield. Windshield. Yeah, I go back to the windshield uh, and then on to Pierce, on to the vampire. Right. And honestly, the, the sight of that windshield, it was a bigger aeroplane than I'd ever imagined in my whole Certainly life. Certainly no gypsy moth. <laughs> <laughs> they tell me that the cockpit in the vampire... It was poorly designed. It was a crampy sort of situation. Did you find that? It was it was a pommy aircraft. 
so it was obviously poorly designed in the in the cockpit. They all seemed to be. They were great aircraft, but the design was uh, not for a dual seat side by side. Yeah. Uh, if you had an instructor who was uh, extremely big and probably had BO, it made the front seat of the Vampire could be an unpleasant place, unpleasant in, place in, to be. in summer. So. Your first posting, uh, you were selected in 66 and graduated in 67? 67, 67. Correct, yes. Were you then posted to Number 10 Squadron at Townsville? Or? I was. And uh, that was first, well, it was first choice because there were no uh, Canberra. I wanted to go to Canberra as the Canberra bomber, but there were no postings that year yeah. or, off that course. And uh, I knew I didn't have the talent to be a fighter pilot, and so the Maritime looked to me a great option. The Neptune Maritime. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that aircraft. Tell me about that. Beautiful old aeroplane. Uh, uh, the Air Force went through two models of the Neptune. The early P2E5 uh, was based here in Sydney at Richmond, and when we uh, re-equipped with the P2E7, they replaced the Lincoln uh, long nose bombers. Um, they were state of the art uh, in in those days with the electronic stuff that was on board for submarine hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, crew of 10, would you believe? I didn't think aeroplanes had that many in the, that many in the, uh, on, on, inside an aeroplane such as that. But uh, two pilots, three navigators and five air, ele- air electronics officers. Right. Uh, which made for good, good crew uh, camaraderie. There was always fierce competition between the crews. Uh, so I was a co-pilot with uh, uh, John Foran in in my sh- relatively short time at Shell sure, Squadron. Sure, but uh, I loved it and, and actually <coughs> wanted to go back there. Was it a, uh, an aircraft that could be used in rescue? We did a lot of search and rescue. It was it was the standard aircraft to go out and drop uh, life-preserving stuff to people in the water, uh, and uh, because it had terrific. Endurance. Yep. Uh, well, in those days, it was you could get around about ten hours out of a out of a Neptune. Uh, that was a long time to be airborne in an unpressurised, unair-conditioned aeroplane. Yeah. So, <laughs> were you not when you actually got into the Neptune and co-piloting a Neptune? You weren't overly disappointed that you didn't get to Canberra to fly the Canberra bomber. No, not really. It's just a, one of those things that you take your chances. Yeah. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed the, the Neptune. It was a ma- magic aeroplane to, mm. to fly with the two big recip engines and the two jet engines. Um, very exciting. Peter, interesting. You, you said a little while ago you didn't have what it took to be a fighter pilot. What, what does it need? What do you need to have to be a fighter pilot as opposed to a, a non-fighter pilot? What do you think the agri- ingredients are? That's a difficult, well, difficult one for me. What did you not have? What did you think you didn't have? Well, I didn't graduate high enough up the list in the in the graduates that we did right. have. We had yep. a lot of failures, I might add. But yep. uh, uh, I was middle of the road, and I knew that in the can I say hack rack zoom part of yep. the flying, um, I just didn't think I had it. So I didn't even attempt to to go to the fighter world. Um, a couple of my mates who did go off that course. Um, one didn't pass the ACU, went back later on, he, he, he passed on the second time around. Um, and out of the others who went there, I think there's a few of them not alive today, which is yeah. rather sad. Yeah, it is, it is. Well, I don't know about 
you thinking you didn't have the what it's needed to be a fighter pilot, but you came first in your helicopter squadron, I believed. Uh, that transference from the <laughs> Neptune to helicopters, how did that occur and where was it? Uh, that was interesting. It really was. Um, I, won't, I won't go into the reasons I was posted down there, but my CR-10 squadron thought that out of the other young fellow who came up there with me, seeing I was older, he saw probably more career opportunities for me down along the road whatever, earlier on. So I happily went down to 5 Squadron and uh, got on the conversion there, and there were 15 of us on the conversion. Uh, some that had come from other squadrons, and the majority were straight off pilot's course, was number 64 course, actually, mm. that I joined at, uh, at, at uh, Fairburn. And uh, to say that the initial business of flying a helicopter was odd... Is, is an understatement, but once you get you click with the ability to hover the goddamn thing, it, it then was a piece of cake, really. I loved it. I love flying the helicopter. Um, so, yeah, I did come first on the course because the, uh, the, the transition to go to Vietnam to Nine Squadron, you went up in order of, of, of passing we, the course. You can. <laughs> so if you topped the course, the bonus was you went up there first. You're so. first off the rank to <laughs> Vietnam. But we will talk about Vietnam in a moment. But in terms of flying a, a, a plane as opposed to flying a helicopter, are there more parts of your body involved with a helicopter than a plane, like feet as well as hands? Forget the head. Uh, Probably a little more so with your feet. But I might say from the outset, um, the, a helicopter, the Iroquois, was just another aeroplane. The aerodynamics, to me, are exactly the same as a fixed-wing aeroplane. Really? Just, oh, yeah. Just derived in different form, that's all. Uh, your feet are used a lot more because of a uh, single main rotor, tail rotor, to yep. keep the thing directionally controlled, but it, it was probably a bit more like the windshield. You know, you had to use your feet a lot in the windshield too. Um, but no, I enjoyed flying the helicopter. I think I, I cottoned onto it fairly well. Uh, and the amount of training we got before we went to Vietnam, I think, was invaluable. Uh, by the time we got up there, we'd accumulated a couple, at least a couple hundred hours, mm. probably closer to 300 hours in some cases uh, of flying the thing. And most of that was in Army cooperation up at, up at Shoalwater Bay. Mm. I spent more time in Shoalwater Bay than the average grunt did uh, before I What's a grunt? What's a grunt? The Army. The, the Army. army. Okay. Infantryman, Infantryman is a grunt. Okay. Um, and that's where I got to meet all these uh, terrific mates that I ended up with in the Army. All started on these exercises at Shoalwater Bay, South Australia, uh, Coltana and those places. Um, no, a wonderful... A wonderful uh, a start to my helicopter hmm. flying. They tell me that the sound of the Huey still occupies a very warm part of most Vietnam veterans' hearts. Oh, does it ever. Um, even today, there's still the odd Iroquois uh, type around, and if I hear, hear one, I've got to go outside and see if I can see it. Yeah. Uh, and talking to the, the Army mates, um, they'll never forget it as long as they live particularly those that might have needed help quickly sure. if they were wounded or whatever else. Uh, the sound of that walk, 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 walk was, you know, spine-chilling. Yeah. I, the, I don't know whether you ever saw the film Apocalypse Now. Bits uh, of it. Bits of it. I, I, there's this 
two parts of it that always stick in my mind at the very beginning of the film there's that sound as it comes across the base where the main star was and he's reflecting on Vietnam and it it's it's haunting it's really haunting I remember a, uh, a digger that I got out of the the jungle on a on a dust off that I subsequently visited him in hospital in in Brisbane at Yoronga Army Hospital and uh, we chatted about the experience but he he reminded me that the sound of uh, that chopper coming to get him where he was uh, being attended to on the ground by his mates but he was pretty badly knocked around mm. he said as soon as I heard that noise of the, the chopper he said I knew I was going to be okay Oh, yeah. All right, look, well, let's talk about Vietnam. That's because it's it's most important. It's certainly important in part of your career. Um, firstly, before you even went there, how much of what was happening in Vietnam was part of your knowledge and part of your training? A fair bit of it, um, particularly all the things that we did with the limited number of helicopters that we at this stage had in Australia mm. to go on exercises. You'd be lucky to get four to go away. And, of course, by the time I got to Vietnam, they'd increased the size of the squadron by 100%. They went from nine old B models, uh, sorry, eight old B models to 16 hotel models. So uh, they were well equipped with brand new aeroplanes in Vietnam. And I think from memory we did have uh, some D models and a couple of H models in Australia during my training. I'd have to look in my logbook. Just before you pr- proceed, yeah. can you just tell us very briefly the difference between those different models? Because for me, it's it's a helicopter, it's a Huey. A little bit bigger. The, ho- the hotel model was a bit bigger, a slightly bigger engine. Uh, could carry, instead of five fully laden troops in the B model, we could pretty easily carry seven. Right. Which made a huge difference when you were moving platoons, companies, or a whole battalion shift. You know, you increase the numbers by two each t- yep. on each aeroplane, you shifted people that much more quickly. Um, and because it had uh, a bigger engine, it performed much better. Mm. And so the, the work up before we left Australia, as I said, we spent a lot of time, all the pilots, crewmen, gunners, mm. um, up in Shoalwater Bay in particular, where that was just a constant rotation of army battalions, mm prior to going to Vietnam. Mm. So those battalions that I was associated with, five battalion, nine battalion, six battalion, uh, I got to meet guys uh, well before we got to Vietnam. And in fact, when I was at 10 Squadron in Townsville, six battalion, who you might recall was the Long Tan, yes. of Long Tan yes. battalion, when they came back to Australia, they moved into the army base at the Laverack Barracks in Townsville while I was at 10 Squadron. And so we had camaraderie there with uh, the Army mm. Battalion when they moved in with the 10 Squadron guys. Mm. And so there I was on exercises and then in Vietnam, um, seeing on the odd occasion, and particularly at Nui Dat, these same guys. And it was terrific to have these mates uh, that you, some of them were not to come home. Yeah, sad. <clears throat> but 9 Squadron, of course, 9 Battalion, of course, is the one of only three Australian groups that ever get the United States Presidential Award for service in, in a war zone. Um, the actual battles itself, being involved in Vietnam, what sticks in your mind when in now you think back at what happened there in the 1960s and 70s? 
I've had the, the pleasure to be invited to do a couple of uh, talks. One was at the Vietnam Veterans Day up in uh, Kingscliff some many years ago. And it was organised by some X9 Battalion guys that I was very friendly with. So I got a phone call to go up there to, uh, to or phone call to ask if I would prepared to do the, uh, the address on Vietnam Veterans Day. And I said I would. And <clears throat> in the course of arriving up there and getting ready for the, uh, uh, this ceremony in the main street of Kingscliff, uh, the padre who was who was about to uh, start proceedings came over to me and he said, Peter, he said, I've got someone here who wants to say hello to you. I said, yeah, who's that? He said, Frank, Frank Riley's daughter. I said, what? Now, Frank Riley, I'll tell you, was one of the pilots who flew the B model at Long Tarn to drop the ammunition to the diggers that probably stopped them from being, I'd say, wiped out. D Company... 6RAR probably wouldn't have existed if they hadn't got an ammunition resupply. And Frank Riley, who was my instructor for a period of time on choppers at Five Squadron when I first went there, this was his daughter, and Frank was long since dead. Mm. And uh, I had to change my speech <laughs> to incorporate not only Frank, but Frank's daughter, who was there in part and parcel of this, this, this ceremony. And what was it about Frank's daughter that m made it necessary to put her into your speech? Just to know that those of us who knew Frank, we loved him. He, he, he was a Korean War veteran, a bit of a, uh, a scallywag, to put it mildly, uh, but a lovely guy, very skilled uh, pilot and particularly skilled helicopter pilot. And so to see that his daughter was still in the, the land of the living and was taking part in the service, mm. Vietnam Veterans Day, mm. I think was very poignant that, uh, that I mentioned her being present and being a you know, the daughter of sure. the one and only Frank Riley. An important, another important ingredient to win with the RAAF in battles overseas. Let's go to March 9, and you're involved in a dust-off, a night dust-off. And sadly, uh, we had three killed in that and six wounded. Can you just reflect on that for a moment? I sure can. Um, I might say at the outset that these experiences that I might describe here to you, probably every pilot, every crewman and every gunner was involved in similar instances. If you go through their logbooks, they'll have all have done similar things. So there's nothing special about what I saw or did or was involved in. But that particular night... Just before you do it, just so the, our friend who's listening to you right now, the reason, and thank you for qualifying it, the reason is they may not have experienced Vietnam, Middle East or whatever, and it's important that they hear in this wonderful history of the Royal Australian Air Force exactly what was involved. So the only way they can hear that is from someone like you who was there. So I respect I what you point. say, but I it's important. So can you take us through what happened? Sure. The, the thing with Nine Squadron and our operations in Vietnam, it was unique because never in the history of the Air Force had an Air Force squadron operated with the Army on a day-to-day -day basis uh, for the entire time we were involved in that particular conflict. Mm. Before that, there were fighter pilots engaging in air-to-air -air combat, you know, ground attack stuff, there were bomber pilots dropping bombs, transport pilots carrying stuff from A to B. 
But here we were as a helicopter uh, unit working directly with the Army on a day-to-day basis, hmm. moving them from A to B, looking after the, the wounded, making sure the dead are taken from the battlefield as, as expediently as possible, mm-hmm. and operating with the SAS, which is something else we'll come to perhaps a little later. But this was a unique experience, not only for me, but it was a unique experience for the Air Force. Having said that, it took a while for Air Force to probably understand how the Army worked, how to, how to best cooperate, etc., mm. etc. Et but that grew over time. And I would say that in my time in 1969, which was pretty much right slap bang in the middle of the mm. war, uh, we had it down to a fine art. We had good relationships with the diggers. We had good relationships with the company commanders. The battalion commanders knew the first name of just about every pilot. There were some wonderful commanders in the Army. Yep. All three of them in my time were ex-Korean War platoon commanders sure. who are now battalion commanders. And so um, we had, in my opinion, a wonderful working relationship with the Army, but particularly the SAS. Yep. We'll come back to the SAS. I just want to, oh, to the, take sorry, you through that March 9 dust-off yeah. and at night. Yeah, at night. We had a system going where the we had a dust-off crew. That was a crew that was specially on on standby uh, to to collect the wounded or dead 24 hours of the day. Mm. And so we had a crew that would sleep in the hangar down at Vung Tau on the airfield. And I just happened to be the co-pilot with a with a chap Graham Downs was 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 the captain on that night. And uh, we got a call at something like one o'clock in the morning that we were required up in the Nuidad area, details to follow. So we launched and, and flying up, as you say, in the middle of the night. And in those, in those days, there was no GPS. It was all DR, uh, no auto hover. It was all manually flown. Uh, we arrived in the Nuidad area to uh, learn that there'd been an un- a dreadful error made by Fire Battalion. They, this was, they'd arrived in Vietnam the same time as I had and they were on their first operation, not far outside Nui Dat, into the hills. And the, the, their operation was completed and for some unknown reason, the battalion commander uh, had decided they'd do a night move back to Nui Dat. I still can't get my head around it, but they did. They, they, but one of the instructions w- was, do not cut barbed wire. So what had happened, one of the companies had run into the, uh, the, the barbed wire protecting Nui Dat. They decided to cut the wire for a shortcut to get back into the, the Nui Dat military zone. And before they knew it, they'd walked straight into the Nui Dat land minefield that surrounded the base. So as you see there, there were three killed and I think half a dozen wounded on that particular occasion. And... We arrived over the top of the, 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 the Nuidat boundary, uh, many, many rows of barbed wire, and in the middle, of course, a mine, landmines of all various types. And uh, we had to hover over the minefield using the searchlight and the landing light to light up the area where these guys were in dreadful trouble, bodies all over the place, mm. caught up in the barbed wire. 
and we felt like a pimple on a pumpkin sitting up there, you know, well above the minefield because we didn't want the rotor wash to, to set off from more mines. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the process, we lo- we we lowered a um, uh, an army sapper down uh, by winch with an army doctor to try to attend to these these people. And of course, the inevitable happened. The the uh, the sapper who was probably working too fast disturbed another mine. Great Caesar's ghost. So, uh, I was happened to be flying at the time, looking down through the chin window as this cloud of dust appeared, had settled. <laughs> the poor bugger had stepped on one and it blew off the front end of his foot, the whole of his foot. It was a small jumping jack mine and it actually severed his foot from where the, the leg joins the foot. Yep. But we managed to get him back on board uh, with a couple of other wounded and uh, yeah, it was a dreadful night, a dreadful night. Uh, and that, that's a night that is repeated many, many times while, while you're in, on duty in Vietnam. Yes, it, it was, and it was just the luck of the draw whether you were flying that day when dust-offs were mm. required. Um, but that was that was one of the worst. Uh, we'll many, to, many more followed. Yeah, we'll come to some others in just a moment. I want to find out about how you ended up landing on the deck of the USS <laughs> Oklahoma City, the flagship of the Seventh Fleet. Well, it was. It was a magnificent vessel, uh, a heavy cruiser. I think it had eight. Eight-inch guns. This thing, and it wasn't designed when it was built during the Second World War. Um, they didn't really provide a big area for helicopters to land on the deck, <laughs> so it was a tight squeeze. It was, uh, uh, but an interesting exercise to uh, take out an army uh, fire control team where this cruiser was going to engage targets up in the province. Yeah, and uh, uh, we stood off, took off, and stood off watching these eight eight-inch guns unleash their terror inland into Fuktui province somewhere. So the landing itself, what was that like? Uh, very simple. He was, he was just hove to, basically. I think he might have been doing two or three knots, just keep steerage. And uh, we, we were marshalled in with the, with the flag, flag waver, uh, with the rotor just missing one of the, the eight-inch guns to... They'd, oh, obviously, really? <laughs> they'd obviously measured it out, but uh, I remember Bill Robbie was was uh, was my co-pilot, and uh, uh, Bill and I were fascinated because I think it was probably the only time the RAA, the RAAF's ever landed on an American warship. Well, the, the the guys steering you in on the warship, the sailors on the warship, mustn't have had a lot of experience with getting a helicopter to land either. So the conversation between two, I think them with flags. <laughs> I think we were the biggest helicopter to land there. They usually had those little Hughes uh, helicopters that, that they could get in and out pretty quickly off those things. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was interesting. Yeah. And there's another experience where you were involved with rescuing members of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, uh, where, in, again, seven were wounded in action. Can you tell us how that came about? Do you remember that we, one? Nine Squadron offered uh, um, aerial support with helicopters to the Republic of Vietnam's army in, in our province on occasions, and particularly with, with uh, dust-offs. And these units usually had American advisors with them. Occasionally there was an Australian advisor. But uh, once again, this... Vietnamese Army unit had uh, got themselves tangled up in a minefield. And we appeared on the scene to what can only be described as carnage, um, people in all states of disrepair. 
and I'll never, I'll never forget the sight of uh, this one particular young Vietnamese boy who was, was put on board. They'd put some bandages around the stumps of his legs. He'd lost both legs above the knee. And uh, they propped him up against the firewall. And we took off headed for, I can't remember which hospital we took them to, but I turned around and this kid was actually smiling. And I indicated, would he like a cigarette? And he nodded his head. And of course, most of us smoked in those days. And I lit up a cigarette and got the, got the crewman to pass him the, the fag. And you'd, you'd swear I'd given him a million dollars, this young fella. And who knows what the outcome would have been for him. Uh, I would have thought not real flash mm. after the fall of Vietnam, one way or the other. Peter, hearing you talk about it right now, like when an, an ambulance officer or a police officer turns on up to a major accident on a motorway, yep. those memories seem very much alive in your memory right now, as if it happened yesterday. Yeah, you don't, you don't forget. You, you push it aside, and uh, most of these things had reasonably good outcomes, uh, one, one hopes. But the major incidents of that nature, they stay with you forever. Yeah. Um, minefields seem to occupy a lot of the disasters that occurred in your flying. Uh, I know that there is one uh, where a, the, your chopper set off a large landmine. Is, is that, am I got that right? Or Yeah, pretty much so. Um, there's, a, there's a long story. There, there'd been a, a very uh, big operation into what we call the Maytow Mountains by 6th Battalion and it was the first time that friendly troops had actually penetrated these mountains. And we knew, they knew that, for instance, the, 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 there was an underground hospital in this mountain complex. Um, Sixth Battalion did a wonderful job. It included the Kiwi Infantry Company that was part of Sixth Six Battalion. And uh, they did, they captured the hospital, got, got all the stores and stuff there and basically flushed out the entire, mm. the entire place. When the uh, operation was over, the armoured column that was involved, there were Centurion tanks and uh, quite a, a squadron of, of APCs involved, and they were moving back towards Nui Dat, and uh, we, were, we were at Nui Dat and got a call that there was a Centurion tank in, in trouble. So we got their engineers on board and headed towards where this Centurion tank had reportedly fallen through the Bailey Bridge. If you understand the Centurion tank, there's a tank that can actually carry a bridge on its back that can lay across an obstacle, like yep. a, a small ravine or whatever else. And of course, this had been done and the Centurion tank that was to follow, actually the bridge broke and... Down she went. The Centurion tank ended up down in the, down in the gully. But as, as we're approaching uh, the, um, this, this site... The first thing we actually saw was a smoke that was thrown for our attention was an APC that was at the lead, it was the lead armoured vehicle in the column. And as we came around, I was, Tony Will was the captain, I was with Tony, and came around the corner and I was on the inside looking at this APC and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. The, the front end of the APC had literally been blown off. That's a 10 tonne piece of mm. metal. And your worst fears are, God, that's, that's caused carnage. And as we're in the flare to land beside the column, just as we're about to land, there was this almighty <laughs> shockwave hit the chopper. And 
And Tony went to go around, but I thought better of it and actually grabbed the controls and threw it on the ground. Thank God we did because the chopper was severely damaged, uh, to say the least. But initially we thought we'd been hit with an RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade, because the Army thought the same. They'd, they'd actually, all these APCs in the column, it was like World War Three. Their 50, 50 cal, 30 millimeter cannons were mm. firing into the tree line in front of us, behind us, over the top of us. Uh, we had a captive audience for a short while, and but then they realised that it wasn't enemy action that did it. It was it was a mine that we tripped. So your rotary had the force down would of your rotary had set off the mine. The the the, the wash trailing us as we're flaring to come into land. Yep, yep. The wash had tripped the mine. And uh, it it was obviously a substantial bit of Chicom explosive. And fortunately, we'd gone past it far enough that we didn't get it directly underneath us. But there was a hole in the sink elevator that you could stand up in. The the, the, the underside of the rotor was 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 uh, fairly fairly. Uh, it looked like shotguns had gone along, and uh, a shotgun had gone along, and and, and all the panels on the, the engine peppered. were all falling off the yeah. aeroplane. Uh, so we were going nowhere, but um, so did that require then you being rescued? Yeah, it did, and it required a Chinook to come and eventually get the chopper and take it back to to Vung Tau. So the enemy couldn't. We 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 didn't want to lose the airframe. It was repairable. Yeah, sure. uh, it was going to cost a bit, but um, it was repairable. But if if you've got the time, I'd like to expand on that incident just a little. Please bit. go for it. After we finally uh, were extricated ourselves from the chopper, that they didn't want us to move because of the landmines. Eventually, they they gave us clearance to get out of the chopper and come over near one of the APCs. They were still re- trying to recover bodies from the from their own uh, explosion mm. that had that had destroyed this APC, and there was one young guy who was a sapper, had been thrown off the APC about at least twenty metres down in front of where the APC had, had hit the mine and they were still trying to get him out. He was lying down there in what sort of state we didn't really know. They finally got him back uh, and I'd, I'd got the crewman to get our stretcher out of the chopper and we, we thought we'd get him ready for, for, for medevac because he's, he's going to get, get dusted off. So we got the, we got the stretcher out of the chopper and um, managed to put him on that. Now he had, I think, third degree burns of the, of the, uh, they're the blast burns. He, yep. he was the colour of this table. He was black, black from his head to his toes, more or less. Most of his clothes were blown off, and and he was in a little bit of uh, pain from obviously being tossed twenty yards down the road. And while he's lying there, uh, he said he was thirsty, and I said, "Ah, oh, mate, well." <laughs> We'll get you some Sydney water. So we went back to the chopper and got the survival pack and cracked a can of survival water we had in these packs on board the aeroplane and fed him this water. Um, Some 45 years later, an email came my way from the Nine Squadron Association saying, look, there's a guy uh, trying to get in touch with with the pilot who fed him some Sydney water. You. (laughs) It was me. (laughs) I said to my good wife, Wendy, I said, hey, come have a look at this email. And we read the email together and I said, uh, goodness knows where he lives. But yeah, this is, the, uh, this is the bloke that we fed the Sydney water and got on board the Medivac chopper, et cetera, et cetera. 
and he had a phone number there. And I eventually uh, said, oh, I, better, I better ring him and see where he lives. God knows where he lives. Mm. He lived in Sydney. And uh, uh, we made contact and got together. And this guy, uh, to this day, he he's quite an artist. And he started his art career um, drawing covers for the Deltones LPs. Oh. So if you remember one of the Deltone LPs where Hanging Five and there's a surfer on the front cover. Yes, I, I have it. Well, if you have another look at it, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Sturmer is the name of this young guy. He was a national serviceman. Um, he, he was the artist and he ended up painting a, a, a rather large painting for me that, that depicts the incident with the chopper being uh, damaged and the APC and, the, and him lying on a stretcher with somebody leaning over him, feeding him the Sydney water. Oh, it's a magnificent. Amazing. It's an amazing uh, painting that hangs in my dining room. And just wall. just out of interest, uh, with all the injuries he'd suffered, when you actually got to talk to him, were those injuries in evident? He was amazingly unscathed, other than the bur- superficial burns. Um, how he didn't break necks, arms, legs, whatever, no one will ever know. Gosh, um, he he had obviously been blown up in the air, landed down the track and somehow managed to survive with few bruises but no broken bones. Yeah. You see, Peter, this is why doing these recollections is so important for uh, the history of the RAAF, the history of Australia. So someone listening now can think, this is what Australians did. This is what Australians went through. This is what we should be grateful for. So I, you know, I can't, I'm in awe of, what, of the story you're telling. Well, it, as I said from the outset, this was a unique experience for the Air Force. The first time we'd ever operated with the Army, with the Army and been involved in that day-to-day stuff where yep. people were dying, people were being wounded, and uh, we, we, we were their, um, their ambulance, their airborne ambulance. Yeah. The incidents you've related already sound horrific, but I know that there's one that you've called the most demanding, and that was the Kiwi Patrol uh, that you had to extract. Yes. Uh, once again, the the operations with the SAS were paramount. Um, a, a tremendous effort from the squadron went into inserting and in, ex- extracting patrols. Mm-hmm. These were six-man, usually six-man patrols. Uh, occasionally there were 12-man called loosely fighting patrols that were inserted. Um, but the average six-man patrol... The, the process of getting them into where they wanted to go, into the, the area they were going to patrol, was um, quite extensive with a, a lot of briefing involved. Usually a recce the day before, we would fly at altitude with the patrol commander on board and fly past the area where he's going to go, not flying around around in circles, but um, to give him an overview of where his patrol was going to be. And then on the day of the insertion, uh, it took five aeroplanes to put six blokes on the ground. Six, uh, five aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. The lead ship, zero 01, Albatross 01, would be the command and control flying at altitude to direct zero 02, Albatross zero 02, who'd be the aeroplane actually putting the, the patrol on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, directing him from above at low level without... The smokes to be thrown, anything else directing him to the landing zone that he's expected to arrive at. Yep. 
and 03 was the spare in case something happened to 02, 03 was the spare that would loosely fly around just out of the road. And the other two would be the gunships. Bush Rangers 1 and 2 would fly uh, Shepherd for us to engage um, the enemy on the ground if things turned to a bucket of worms during the insertion. The extraction was uh, pretty much the same sort of thing, but on occasions, uh, more often than we really would want, the patrols would get into difficulty. Uh, obviously taking on too many enemy, remembering there's six of them, mm. and it doesn't take much to have a patrol, <coughs> a patrol in very serious uh, trouble, uh, and you would probably lose them if you couldn't get them out of there in a, yep. in a hurry. So once again, uh, six, uh, five, five aeroplanes required to get them out. On this particular occasion, we'd got word that uh, there was an SAS uh, uh, trooper wounded and it was a Kiwi uh, patrol. And they were a fair way away. They were right on the, uh, the boundary of the province. Um, and uh, time was the essence because we didn't know, A, how badly wounded he was, and, and B, whether they were still in contact. When we got in the area, it was obvious that we couldn't land and the roping to extract the troops by 100-foot-long ropes yep. was dispensed with for a period of time. That's another story. But the only way we could get them out would be to winch them out. And you can only winch two at a time. So there are six of them. And the timber was pretty tall timber and uh, I just happened to be the zero two on that day. And uh, Stu Dalgish was, was the, the co-pilot. I, I know who the crewman was, Pinky Pinkerton, who's uh, Terry Pinkerton, who uh, lives in the Brisbane area. The gunner I don't know. I've lost track of who that was. Sure. It's not in my logbook, obviously. But uh, we, we arrived over the top of these six guys. They'd thrown a smoke. The smoke drifted up through the trees and... You could hear the gunfire below. Um, the, there was still, there was still contact with with these these guys. Now we didn't really know the circumstances at that stage, what had happened. But uh, when the uh, the winch went down, had, we had what was called a jungle penetrator, a device that had like um, a seat that folded out from this ship's anchor. Yes. It looked like a ship's anchor, and you could you could safely get two people on on that anchor. Eventually, uh, they got the wounded guy, I say that loosely, uh, that he was wounded, and one other to support him on the way up. Then became the problem when they got up to the top of the winch, winch cycle was trying to get that weight in on board the aeroplane. Normally, the person on the winch would be able to assist, but one of them, in fact, at this stage was deceased. The crewman, Pinky Pinkerton, had actually uh, had the foresight to, to get out of his compartment where he had the M60 machine gun. He'd come uh, forward, he'd got the long lead to operate the winch, gone back into the compartment, because he was engaging enemy on the ground as of well. Of course. With his machine gun, as was the gunner. And uh, the uh, he eventually had to stop firing the machine gun to then come forward to assist these two to try to get them on board, which they did. As soon as that happened, uh, the the able guy that came up on the winch, his name was Bill Tari. Bill, Bill uh, he climbed into the, uh, the crewman's machine gun position to take up the machine gun for, 
four pinky while he operated the winch. And of course it had to go down twice more to get the other four out. And um, fortunately when you're flying the, the darn chopper, it, it's, you've got something to concentrate on. You've got to main sh make sure you don't move an inch because this uh, the, the winch cable is going down through the trees and you can't wander all over the place no, it's or you'll foul the cable. Yep. So there's a lot of concentration that you, you're occupied with that. But I felt sorry for Stu Dalgleish. He was the co-pilot sitting there with nothing to do, uh, listening to the sound of gunfire <laughs> <laughs> below us and around us and whatever. But we've, we finally got the six out and um, we never got hit. We never got hit. It was quite That's amazing. It is. It is. Um, never got hit, and we're we're unscathed. But I've never flown as fast as that in my life with the chopper to get to the Back Beach um, Army Hospital, our Army Hospital down there, with with uh, the guy who was wounded, who was their patrol commander, Sergeant Graham Campbell was his name. A New Zealander. And New, they're all New Zealanders. All New Zealanders. Yeah. Yeah. There were uh, six patrol in the patrol, five Maori uh, and and one um, um, European. Uh, a wonderful bunch of characters. We got to the hospital and, and landed there and when we shut uh, shut down, I said to the guys, look, we'll stay here until we find out what's happening with Graham. They thought he might have been still alive. But in fact, there was a, there was a mark on his forehead where he'd taken the first hit. Oh, dear. And um, he, he obviously died. Now... From that day, uh, eventually, uh, a medical person came out and rather glibly said to the patrol, I don't know what you're hanging around for, he's dead. Well, <clears throat> I think I had to put my, my hand on the shoulder of Bill Tari. <laughs> this medical person could have suffered injury. <laughs> but I said, to, I said to Bill, come on, mate, let's go home. And we all, you know, flew back to Nevidat. And I never saw these, these guys again for about another 40-something years when um, my daughter was a foreign correspondent with the ABC based in Auckland at the time. And, and um, her mum and I uh, uh, used to make various trips over there and I went over once by myself to see her and long story short, I tried to get her to track down, uh, if she could track down the whereabouts of any of the guys in the yeah. patrol. She had some good... Uh, New Zealand mates in politics that I thought might have been able to mm. sort this out. Over time we did and we um, the widow of Graham had subsequently married his boss and I caught up with him in New Zealand and uh, about a year after that I got a phone call from New Zealand inviting my wife Wendy and I to go to New Zealand up to the army base at Waiuru where they were going to hold a a pretty big ceremony to install a photograph of Graham in the Maori mm. Marae. And of course, uh, with a tear in my eye, I said, yeah, we'll be there. So we flew over and uh, we've, we've been in close contact with a couple of the guys. They're an amazing bunch of people. I, I've, got, I've got to tell you this because at the instant that Graham was shot in the jungle, they were ambushed by a superior force. They they were being watched from the moment they had been inserted the day before. When Graham was, was uh, fatally shot, <coughs> they made a decision instantaneously that it was all out or none out. They weren't leaving Graham behind. 
dead mm. or alive. And uh, that has stayed with me for my entire life. It, it, it gives you an understanding of the mentality of people, how they think, how they feel, mm. how close they are. Um, and they did. They fought their way out. No, they were escaping and evading for hours, uh, carrying Graham. And the guy who carried Graham, if you're a rugby union man, you might know the guy who, who, who uh, actually carried him. His name was Mac McCallion, who was the coach of the Auckland Blues for a period of time, and then he coached the Fijian 15 and whatever. Uh-huh. And sadly, only passed away a couple of years ago, and I couldn't make his funeral mm. in, in New Zealand. But uh, they're the sort of relationships you, 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 can, you can take on if you want to. I did because I, I just felt we owed it to those guys to uh, not only do our best from Air Force's point of view, but to show them that we're there for them all, at all times. Yeah, but Peter, surely that would be true of the, right through the entire service, that the members of the service just, they become attached. We do. And, and you carry that attachment on beyond the service activity itself, but into normal life, everyday citizenry life. It's beyond Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that's just one phase of my life. And, and um, uh, I wouldn't have missed it for the, for the world. Uh, for all the sadness that was involved, it was a it was a phenomenal experience to be involved with a great squadron, yeah. um, a great bunch of blokes, and to see how fine our army is. That's what impressed me most. That that was the days of national service. Mm. Half the battalions were national service. They were the best educated, best trained soldiers ever to leave our shores. Yeah. And, and this is an Air Force personnel talking, which is a great compliment. I, I have two final questions before we leave Vietnam. And the first one is you, you've made a, a lot of reference to the SAS. Just tell us about that relationship between you, the Air Force, and the SAS in Vietnam. I think I, think I tried to, to mention that, that it was, they were high priority. The, the task force commander, uh, Brigadier Pearson, uh, great, great general, one-star general, he made it known that the SAS, when in trouble, had top priority. Any other operation that was going on at the time would cease and enough the aeroplanes that were required to extract a patrol in, in, in trouble um, would, would get first priority. And so... Uh, the personal relationships that the pilots, crewmen, gunners made with S- the SAS troops continues to this day, where I'm proud to say I'm a member of the New South Wales Retired S- SAS Association. And uh, that, that I'm not the only one. There's a, there's a whole bunch of blokes, particularly in Queensland, who are members of that their associations. They never forget. Mm. I, I at- attended a homecoming for an army guy that I don't know whether I mentioned there, the fellow who fell from the rope when we were doing a rope that extraction. That was David Fisher. David Fisher. I was in the formation that day when that happened, but uh, I, I didn't actually see him come off the rope. When he finally, his remains were found, uh, I might just quickly say that he went undiscovered for decades and the reason he couldn't be found on the day that he fell off the rope he fell into a bomb crater full of water 
Mm. Oh, and the odds of that were, 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 were pretty high, um, but he remained in that bomb crater after the war. It was in a fairly remote part of the province, and it was the locals, Vietnamese, who found his, his remains, remains and pack and everything else that was there. Now, the homecoming was at Richmond Air Base out here in Sydney, and a bunch of us got together and said, listen, we've got to, we've got to be there for that homecoming, which I, I was. And the remainder of the patrol at that stage were all still alive. Um, sadly to say they're not now, but I attended the ceremony and... Uh, Fisher's sister was there and the patrol commander uh, whom I'd caught up with as soon as I got to the base introduced me to her and um, I, it was like closing a door for her that mm. she was able to speak to people who were, who were intimately involved with what had tragically happened with her brother mm. and uh, the patrol commander whose name I'm just struggling with at the moment but he introduced me and a couple of others, ex-Air Force fellows, to present-day SAS who were doing a guard of honour to, to, to get him off the aeroplane. And he said to them, Peter's X-9 squadron. Now, these are guys who have come along 30, 40 years later, knew intimately about 9 Squadron's involvement and relationship with the SAS. Yeah. There you go. That's heartwarming. It is. And the second question, which is a silly question, but let me ask it anyway, because I'm not in the Air Force, I understand the helicopter as a helicopter or chopper. And throughout the interview, you've been referring to it as an aeroplane. Can you tell me why? Well, it is. It's an aeroplane. Although it's got a rotating foil on the top, the aerodynamics are exactly the same as a fixed-wing aircraft, believe it or not, to fly. Basically the same. The hovering aspects is is a little bit different. But once we master the art of being able to hover a helicopter, you've got it scunched. It's just another aeroplane. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Believe for, me. Thank you for solving an idiot's question. <laughs> I, 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 I was an instructor on the thing too. No, okay, okay. Look, I, I know that you you come back as a flying instructor. You do the course with the Mackies. You get posted to 37 Squadron as an instructor on the C-130E. But then post Air Force career, or even, even during Air, you you have met an amazing group of people. I mean, I, I'm Sir Zelman Cohen, Malcolm Fraser, who himself was in the Air Force. Who were some of the other people you met, and how do they stand out in your memory? Fond memories. Um, it was an interesting posting to go to 34 Squadron, the VIP Squadron, who were equipped in those days with the BAC 111. A little bit like the DC-9, if you remember your days yes, flying I, around oh, the DC-9. Yes, um, Twin-engine, T-tail, a lovely aeroplane to fly. And I was lucky enough to get a posting there as the QFI instructor on, on the, the back 111. And during my time there, uh, Malcolm Fraser was PM, so I uh, met numerous, numerous at times. Uh, obviously, Malcolm on a, almost a daily basis on occasions. Um, Sir Zilman Cowan was the Governor General at that stage. Mm -hmm. um, lovely man, uh, and his wife as well, delightful people. Um, and I was lucky enough to fly uh, St Ninian Stevens in on his first day in the job. Flew him up from Melbourne to take over as the next Governor General. But uh, so it was a coalition government during all that period of time. So uh, other than 
Uh, Bill Hayden, uh, I flew around numerous times. I flew Bill around during the election campaign, I think the one where he couldn't possibly lose. Um, interesting days uh, with, with Bill, who then, as you know, became Governor-General much, much later. Um, but Peter, if I can interrupt, you also flew the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> I mean, let's not forget the Duke of Edinburgh. Gee, I'm pleased to say that now, bless his soul. Um, from what I understand, I only met him on that one occasion. But I had the um, the CEO had given me the uh, uh, the flexibility that if um, the Duke wished to fly the aeroplane, because he had an endorsement, would you believe, on the BAC 111. Yes, he'd been checked out on that by uh, the BAC, one of the BAC test pilots. And so when he arrived in Sydney, I was, when I picked him up, I walked down the back and introduced myself and said that I had the authorisation for him to fly us, fly us uh, down to Canberra. And he, he looked at me and said, uh, he said, my, my young man, he said, uh, I, I think it's best if you fly me down there. He said, I had rather a heavy night in Auckland <laughs> last night. <laughs> uh, delightful guy, but people like uh, Sir James Killen was another one of the, the lovely people. And a great defence minister he was too. Oh, uh, an outstanding individual. Being an ex-Air Force man, of yeah. course, um, he, he was a delightful person to talk to. Um, there was an endless stream of people from heads of state, um, uh, Indira Gandhi, Jerry uh, Chogham, yeah. I think, was there. Uh, the when the EU first was instituted, uh, I flew uh, the president of that organisation around for about a week. But I suppose the most um, memorable black would would have to be uh, President Mugabe from Zimbabwe. <laughs> um, a very quietly spoken man that uh, once again I spent many days with he wanted to see northern Australia Townsville's on about the same mm. latitude I think as, as Harare he wanted to see Mount Isa and the mines and wherever else sure. but uh, interesting Globally the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.